Good morning, everybody. Lovely to be with you again and to bring God's word to you. As you know, from Matthew's Gospel, as many of us all studied that through the years, it contains many of Jesus' parables. I guess most of us are all quite familiar with just so many of them, aren't we? The sower and the seed, the laborers and the vineyard. And I guess the simple definition of a parable is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And we see in all of these parables that Jesus begins in every one of them and he makes so many references in Matthew's Gospel to the kingdom of heaven. And in it, he describes as to what it's like to live in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, he does so 31 times. So I guess it's pretty important what he's teaching. And remember a few weeks ago, John Young preached from Matthew 25, this parable that we've uh, just read again now, that uh, Graham has read for us, about the servants and the talents that they were given. It's been many years since I've preached on this parable. And what John preached stirred me up to have a serious fish look at it again because there's an awful lot in it to consider. And we need to be settled in our spirit to know exactly what Jesus is teaching in this parable. So to do that, we'll look at it now. Let's begin first in the word of prayer. Again, Lord, with our word, your word open before us. Lord, we pray again for our hearts and minds to be received by your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, that we would take what is appropriate from this word, Lord, and apply it into our lives and to know of the fullest assurance, Lord, of our salvation in you. I pray, Lord, that you give me the right words to say to convey the truth of this message to us, that we might be built up in our most holy faith. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to do a full rehash, of course, of what John preached on about what we know of these three servants and their talents and what they were given. But one of the things in such there that we need to look at, and I've read an awful lot of commentaries on this in such there, that it's almost as if there's an elephant in the room that nobody wants to speak about. Because what I want to do is to draw your attention to the eternal destiny of the unprofitable servant who did nothing with his talent. It's a fundamental question that needs to be asked. Exactly what is Jesus teaching in this parable? Is he teaching that there that if you don't use your talent, hell is your destiny? That's the question. Ask Dennis if he put them up there because there's three things that I want to look at within this. The question, the answer, and then the assurance. Because it puts an awful lot of pressure upon us about what we do with our talents and what's the consequences if we don't. So that's the question. The question is if... 
We are servants in God's kingdom. How secure is our salvation if we don't use that talent? As I've said to before, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. God speaks to our minds. He convicts us in our hearts and it comes out in the works of our hands. And we need all three. So what I want to do is to look at this parable and the questions that it poses step by step. Think your way through it. When we see this, Jesus firstly is referring to these three servants serving their master in the kingdom of heaven as it exists here on earth. He's not referring to the heavenly, heavenly kingdom. Because in the context of this parable, and such, I can't see much point in burying talents in heaven. So obviously, it's referring and relates to us and how we live in the kingdom here on earth. So the application is for us. And also you would assume as well that the master that Jesus is referring to here is the Lord God. And the reasons why I say that is because it would only be him who has the authority to make a judgment such as he has on the servant with one talent. Now We all know that our entry into God's heavenly kingdom our salvation from judgment is founded upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. That's the basis of our salvation. And unless you are cleansed of your sin by his sacrifice, you will never enter the heavenly, heavenly kingdom. And so then we come to the question of this parable in the context of it. Does Jesus mean that if your service is not profitable here on the earthly kingdom, you will be banished from the heavenly kingdom, thereby losing your salvation? Or put in other words, if Jesus has saved you, is it now up to you to keep yourself saved? Is that the correct understanding of salvation? Let me give you a couple of definitions. The Roman Catholic Church, it has this understanding of salvation. In the Jerusalem Study Bible that they used, they quote this from Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, which is again is a well-known passage of scripture that we have. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. And then continues, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the textual translation that they have used, except that what they've done is they've added a little heading to the section. And you'll find them in most Bibles and such that there they have a little heading on the top. They are not Scripture. 
They are there supposedly to advise you. And the little note that's in the Jerusalem Bible is headed on that section, work for your salvation. That work, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, would be that you would give allegiance to the Pope's divine authority. We'd have rosary prayers and priestly confessions, etc., etc. I'll leave you to your own judgment as to whether you think that that's valid for what constitutes salvation. But in Protestant circles, David Pawson, a Baptist pastor in England, wrote a devotional titled Once Saved, Always Saved, with a big question mark. That book is a very good devotion. It focuses on taking seriously our holiness before God and our obedience and our discipleship. It puts some very, very good questions to us about our walk before the Lord. It's very good. But you see, in answer to the question about the security of our salvation... He quotes various instances and gives examples of people in the Old and the New Testament who, according to his theology, lost their salvation. He quotes King Saul from the Old Testament, for example, and also the servant with one talent in this of Jesus' parable. So that's the question. Can we lose our salvation. So what's the answer from there? Dennis, could you put it up for us, please? Well, firstly, you can forget about the Roman Catholic doctrine. But let's deal with David Pawson. Before you can use or quote any examples from Scripture, as Pawson has done, you make certain that you've got a clear Understanding of the theological basis of salvation from what Scripture teaches. That needs to be correct first. And Pawson's basic theological understanding of Christ's work and the salvation for his people is flawed. As I say, it's an excellent devotional book, but the basis of salvation is flawed. His understanding of the cross is this. Jesus' gracious sacrifice is the enabling act for anyone to claim salvation by exercising faith in him. I'll say it again. Jesus' gracious sacrifice is the enabling act for anyone to claim salvation by exercising faith in him. It sounds not unreasonable. Let me give you now the answer as to what we believe within our reformed position of Grace Church. Would you put that up for me, please, Dennis? 
But our reformed position of Grace Church is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not just to make your salvation available by faith. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his shed blood, is the covenant seal of your salvation for eternity. You see, it is what Christ has done for you on the cross, not what you have done for yourself by exercising faith. That's the difference. Christ has saved you. You haven't saved yourself by exercising faith. If you belong to the Lord's, you will always belong to the Lord's. We read in the Old Testament in the book of Job, the very first statement is made that God makes of Job and says, Behold, my faithful servant. And then he is tried and tested by Satan. Did Job fail? He came mighty close, but he never failed. And the reasons why is because God declared him and said, this is my faithful servant. If he fails, it means God made a mistake. And if we worship a God who makes mistakes, we're in big trouble. And that's why those who have truly professed a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will never lose their salvation. That's the answer. We still haven't dealt with this yet. So what can we learn from this parable about why the servant given one talent was banished? You hear all sorts of stories. Oh, yes, and so I say he was resentful because he only got one talent and the others got two and five. Rubbish. We need a clear answer about why he lost his salvation because he didn't exercise that God-given talent. We need it clear in our minds. Why? Well, there are some facts that we need to consider. Because, you see, if our salvation is dependent upon the use of our talent, it puts us under enormous pressure to perform. Have I come to church often enough? Have I given enough money to the church? Do I do enough Bible study? What becomes a pass mark? So that cannot possibly be the answer. But I think that you'll find that there's another reason. Now, if you turn in your Bibles and you look at this, you'll note that in this parable, Jesus uses the word faithful many times in context of exercising faith. As he does so and such, he says out there and speaks about to enter into his joy. The joy we receive when we see God's work in people's lives. Now, Roger was a Gideon and I was a Gideon for many years before the Lord called me into ministry from there. And I can assure you from there that one of the great joys that you have 
in the Gideon ministry. He's putting a Bible into another person's hand. It's a joy to have somebody reach out with their hand and give them a Bible. Now that ministry for us can be in anything in the things that we do when you are able to do something and speak in a way or do something in the Lord's name for somebody else. You enter into that joy. It's not a task. It's something that we do in love before the Lord. It's not a burden for us to do so. You see, when I look at this and just there, and I think about this servant's banishment, it was not just because he was lazy and he didn't do anything with his talent. You see, I think it was because he didn't have any true faith in God to do anything with the talent. You see, in James, James writes and such in chapter 2, verse 18, and he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, it's our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that we do the things that we do. You see, there's going to be times in our lives and such with barrenness and disappointments in our service. It's going to happen. Prophet Jeremiah is a perfect example of God telling him to preach and no one was going to listen. But you see, God doesn't call us to be successful. He simply calls us to exercise our talent, whatever, by being faithful. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul writes in there and he says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And there's something else we need to look at as well, and so it's there in verse 24, as you read your way through. The servant refers to his master as a hard, profiteering man. I know my master and so do you. And the servant's opinion of his master is not the master I know and love. As you do as well, I serve the very best of masters who live, leads, guides, provides for me, chastises me when I do wrong, but even in spite of all that, still loves me. And I guess we could all say this, exactly the same thing. But irrespective as to whether or not this man was hard or whether or not he was a profiteer and what he was doing as a master, as Jesus has said, and there's an argument there to say that this is, he's never admitted to this. But... The fact of the matter is he was still his master and he was still bound to serve. 
I think that the conclusion we can draw from this servant before his master was he didn't really know his master at all. And I think that's a critical factor in understanding. To know the master that you serve and to love him and what he promises. And so we see the question and we see the answer. So what assurance do we have? What assurance do we have from God's word and such there to know that who we are and that we belong to him? And the assurance to that, of course, is there, is again from God's word, Romans 9. Thank you, Dennis, if you will put it up for us. And the Apostle Paul gives us this answer. One of the things that you'll note within it that it is written in the past tense. It's very important. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, past tense, he predestined, past tense, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, past tense, he also called, past tense, and those whom he called he also justified, past tense, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Past tense. In other words, your glorification is past tense. It is already an established fact. It's just that it hasn't happened yet. Paul concludes this wonderful assurance by telling us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He begins this passage, no condemnation, and concludes it, no separation. Once saved, always saved. And you have God's word on it. Amen.